This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Before we look at God's Word, let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Please do take a seat. Now, it would be really great if you would turn to page 929 in the Bible, um, because Paul uses quotes, and sometimes if you just hear it, you might misunderstand what he's saying. Uh, so in particular, it would be great to have that text in front of you today from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, it's a rich text. I'm not going to be able to explain all of it in this a short stretch of time, uh, so it'd be great to uh, keep talking about it, and I'd be delighted if you wanted to ask questions, especially about parts of the text that I haven't touched on today. But I want to begin by inviting you to look around today at St. Mark's, the people, not the building, and to think about who it is that you see alongside you. Some here are married. Some here are divorced, some here are remarried, some here are single, some here are separated. This is us. This is the church that Jesus has gathered here. This is the church that God has brought together. We are the people for whom Jesus himself gave his body. He washed us and made us holy. As we learnt last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he died for us to wash us, to sanctify us, and to make us holy. And now he's asking us, all of us, to be pure, or to use the English word which means the same thing, to be chaste. Now last week I introduced to us the idea that where we live is a place called, which I'm calling, planet porn. Now, planet porn sounds as if it's somewhere in Amsterdam or in King's Cross, but it's actually a much more powerful and pervasive idea than that. It's just as active in a leafy suburb down the end of a cul-de-sac as it is in a red-light district. On planet porn, men are cast as power mongers and lust machines with insatiable sexual appetites that can't be controlled. Women are cast as the objects of that lust, there to provide sexual services and make babies. On planet porn, our bodies can be bought and sold, and we can buy and sell the bodies of others. Our bodies can be owned and exploited. Despite the advances that we've made in thinking of women more equally, who could deny that this is still the case? What we've seen of the Me Too movement and of the recent revelations about domestic abuse show the extensive reach of planet porn. And what we've realised in this is that just wandering down the end of the aisle here one Saturday afternoon and exchanging rings, wearing a white dress and a suit, doesn't take you out of planet porn. A number of years ago, I was talking to a man who was 20 years older than me and he was having a whinge about his wife. The man was on his third wife and now I think I can see why. He said to me, look, marriage is a contract. I work hard and provide. It's her job to have sex with me and to have the children. And she's not doing that. She's not keeping her side of the bargain. I think he felt that some kind of contract had been voided. 
Thinking of marriage as a contract makes it into a kind of barter deal in which you have to provide services in exchange for services from your partner. Which then means you are always asking the question, is my partner fulfilling their part of the bargain? Am I getting a good deal here? Are my needs being met? Now today we turn for a very different idea of how marriage and singleness should operate to the Apostle Paul. And you might be saying, what? That hoary old misogynist? What could he tell us about marriage? But what you'll find is that Paul, in keeping with the rest of the Bible, just might surprise you, just might be a different Paul than the reputation he's sometimes gained. And Paul wants us to know that marriage is in itself not the alternative to planet porn. No, sexual chastity is. And every Christian, married or single, is called to sexual chastity or to purity. Remember, Corinth was not a world unlike ours. Roman sexual customs were pretty much oriented to male pleasure. Men had wives, and that relationship was pretty much focused on having babies. Uh, they did not have wives to enjoy sex with. They had mistresses and uh, boys and prostitutes to do that, sometimes even slaves. But there were more puritanical teachers at the time who thought that this idea was sort of horrifying, and they said, look, sex should never be for fun or for relationship building. It should only be, it's a kind of disgusting thing, it should only be for making babies. Perhaps the answer to planet porn, they were saying, was to have no sex at all except when necessary. The Corinthians had picked up on this debate and they could see that Paul was himself single. And so they'd clearly written to him to ask him about it, as we see in verse 1. And they quoted a well-known saying from some of these more puritanical uh, thinkers. They weren't necessarily Christian thinkers. They, they said, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. And what they meant by this, it's a euphemism for having sex for pleasure. They said, look, it's well not to have that kind of sex. But Paul, you notice, is not opposed to the joy of sex. In fact, he'd be unbiblical if he was. Now, there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to exploring erotic passion. It's called the Song of Songs. Now, I've got you intrigued. Don't turn to it now. But in fact, what Paul picks up from this book is the remarkably intense description, not just of male desire, but of female desire and pleasure. And that feeds into what he then says in these verses about marriage and singleness. And he's got three things to say, three things for us to hear today. First of all, if you're married, keep having sex. Secondly, if you're single, stay single if you can, but marry if you need to. And thirdly, if you're married, don't separate from your partner, don't divorce them without a valid reason. So first of all, in verses 1 through to 7, he says, if you're married, keep having sex. He says it's because, in our translation, because of cases of sexual immorality, but the translators have added that word cases, and that original word is the word porneia, from which we get porno pornography and fornication from. And it just means, basically, because of planet porn, because of the environment in which you're in, 
Marriage partners should not withhold from each other. His answer is not puritanical. His answer answer here is, each woman should have her own husband, each man should have his own wife, by which he's not saying everyone should be married, quite clearly. What he's saying is, stick to your partner. You should have your partner, your, your wife or your husband, your spouse, and not others. And notice here as how Paul does not simply address men as sexual beings, but addresses women as well. Or he addresses husbands who's those, who are those whose role is to fulfill their wives sexually. Now, when we hear this, of course, we sort of think, well, that's of course. But this is a complete revolution. An absolutely innovative and extraordinary thing for a teacher to say, He's saying sex in marriage is not just for male pleasure, but as something to be given and received by husband and wife. A wife's sexual needs matter as much as a husband's. And notice how he starts by telling husbands that they have to get on with it. He says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, rather bloodless phrase, conjugal, conjugal rights here, and likewise the wife to her husband. It's too strong, the word rights, because it sounds like if, if I'm not getting my rights, then I can go to some court of human rights, and it, it sounds like that sort of contract idea, doesn't it? But it's better to say here, husbands and wives should fulfill their promises to one another, should act like husbands and wives as sexual partners and not withdraw from one another. They aren't to find sexual pleasure on the side, as many men were doing, and they aren't just to say, look, I'm giving up on the whole sex thing because it's impure. And that's the vision of marriage that he outlines in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, too often we've only read the first half of this verse. And if we just read the first half, it does sound shocking, doesn't it? Well, Paul's words have sometimes been twisted and used as a kind of list of demands. Look! Spouse, usually it's a husband saying this to a wife, isn't it? You've got no right to say no because I've got authority over your body. And I'm sorry to say that I know of cases where this verse and verses like it have been used as weapons to manipulate spouses. Usually, as I say, husbands manipulating wives. But to do that is to miss what Paul is saying here entirely to distort it horribly. And we need to notice two things. See how, first of all, authority is given to both spouses in marriage. In our marriage service, the partners start by saying that they give themselves to one another. I'm just using my brother and his his wife's name here. David, will you give yourself to Samantha? Give yourself to Samantha to be her husband to live with her according to God's word. And then they promise to have their partner. I, David, in the presence of God, take you, Samantha, to be my wife. To have and to hold from this day forward. And then, of course, it's reversed. Marriage is not a contract of ownership of woman by man. It's not domestic prostitution. But in Christian terms, a mutual belonging to one another in body and soul. So that's the first thing. Authority is given to both, not just to one. 
The second thing is that Paul isn't saying this so that you can force your partner. This isn't about some kind of weird vision of marital rape. What an extraordinary thing. Paul himself would be appalled that we only made marital rape a crime in New South Wales in 1981. That's not what Paul is saying here. This isn't about your partner. This is about you. Are you fulfilling your promises to your spouse? Or are you looking elsewhere? And this is where we have to say that Paul does not see marriage as the magic antidote to planet porn. The wedding day and all its finery does not do that. No, Paul is saying to us here, married Christians need to practice sexual chastity just as much as everybody else. They need to discipline their sexual selves as much as single Christians do. They need to shape their sexual selves, not as driven by power and lust or as a bargaining chip in a marriage, but by their married belonging to their partner. And we hear a lot of talk about consent in this era of sexual confusion and hurt. The wedding day is not one moment of consent which then covers the rest of your lives. The wedding day is the beginning of a lifetime of giving and receiving consent. It should be a lifelong practice of pursuing companionship and intimacy with another person, a project which takes patience and forgiveness and looking at yourself and trying to understand yourself better and trying to understand your partner better. There may be very good reasons for saying no to an approach from your partner, physical tiredness and ill health being just two that I can think of. It may well be that you are feeling so hurt and abused or neglected by your spouse that the thought of sex with them is appalling. It's really important to say here that Paul's answer is no, is not, well, you just have to give over. You just have to lie back and get on with it and have sex anyway. But actually, the relationship needs work. Taking Paul seriously here may mean going to marriage therapy, or at least, and excuse the product placement, coming to our marriage enrichment course, which begins on October the 22nd. The thing is, that sex shouldn't be used as a weapon or a bargaining chip. That's the way of planet porn. And when married partners do it, it's just as bad. If a partner is withholding sex from the other in an attempt to manipulate or punish their partner, then something is deeply wrong. If a partner is seeking sexual fulfilment outside the marriage, then something is wrong. But marriage isn't the only path to pursue chastity. As Paul says, if you're single, stay single, if you can, and marry if you need to. Have a look at verse 8. He says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they're not practicing self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame, and our translations add, with passion. We do tend to make an idol out of marriage, both in the church and outside of it. We say marriage is the fulfillment of human life, and surely everyone both needs to be married and should want to be married. It is the most glorious thing, the fulfillment of everything that we all want, the aspirations of the human heart. We can't imagine a fulfilled human life without it. We certainly can't imagine a fulfilled human life without sex. But Paul is quite pragmatic here. He thinks singleness is a great place to serve God in, 
since he's single himself. And he thinks there's a freedom in it too. But he also recognises that it isn't necessarily what everyone would choose. He says, look, some people have this gift, some people don't. That's fine. And so he says, if you aren't practising sexual self-control, pursue marriage if you can. Marriage is not more or less pure than singleness. Both are being ways of being chaste as a Christian. Sometimes in Christian history, we've honoured singleness more than marriage. That was probably true in the thousand years from 500 to 1500. Uh, we honoured singleness. We said that the single life is a superior way of life. Then following that, following the Reformation in 1500, we turned the tables and we said, no, 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 marriage, marriage is the superior way of life. And we, we said uh, we left our single brothers and sisters out in the cold. The truth is the Bible honours both ways of life, singleness and married, as ways in which we can serve God faithfully. We can represent the great gospel, the great work of our God. So maybe single... Now, I should say, getting married is not something that should be done hastily. We could read this verse as, look, if you can't practice self-control, then just grab the nearest woman or man and I'll see you here on Tuesday. Actually, you need a month, but that's all. If you want to be married, you need to figure out how to be a person in, who is ready to be married. Too often, we seek the person who will fulfill our needs rather than working out whether we're ready to take on the responsibility of being married. It is not counsel to marry hastily, not at all. So maybe singleness is for you for whatever reason. Maybe singleness is where you are at the moment. Maybe singleness is just what you need to do for now. You should not feel pressure from the Christian community to marry. In fact, we Christians should support you in your singleness, just as you in your singleness should support those Christians who are married. And I apologise because I don't think we do that very well, I'm afraid. I know too many Christian singles who felt that they're somehow outcast or despised for not being married or somehow incomplete or they've had those comments which say, surely you'll be looking to date now, surely you'll be looking to get married because surely you couldn't be happy unless you were married, uh, surely you couldn't be normal unless you got married. As we've seen, this is not biblical thinking. Remember, not only was Paul single, but Jesus was single. But you might be saying, look, I would like to get married. I'm ready, but I can't find the right person. Well, we'll have a bit more to say about that next week. That's the cliffhanger. But third, Paul says to us in verses 10 and 11, if you're married, don't separate. Now, this isn't everything the Bible has to say on the issue of divorce. The issue of divorce is a complicated and difficult one, as people know, as you know. There are certainly legitimate biblical grounds to divorce, including adultery, neglect, and abuse. It seems that Paul is here speaking to people who want a kind of no-fault divorce so that they can marry someone else. This was actually really common in the ancient world. In fact, when marriage uh, agreements were drawn up, they were often drawn up on the assumption that the marriage would end in divorce rather than by the death of one of the partners. It was just a, a kind of given. It was a regular Greco-Roman practice uh, that people would divorce and remarry all the time, without question. But Christians, says Paul, don't do that kind of divorce. Wives and husbands should not separate. Or if they do, they should not do so just to marry someone else, 
Paul recognizes that sometimes people, people separate. So a wife might want to separate from a husband. He says, but if she does, that's not to be a separation in order so that she can marry someone else. This may seem like a difficult teaching given our cultural assumption about divorce and remarriage. But I speak to a lot of people who've left a partner just because they've grown apart or because they met someone else or because they weren't being fulfilled in their original marriage. And Paul's call to us is, that's not the way of the church of Jesus Christ. So he says, don't neglect your marriage. Turn to your partner. Make good on your promises where you possibly can. That's the path through the thickets of planet porn. Paul is not naive. Marriage can sometimes be a difficult calling. It can be painful. It can be a crucible for character. It can be a lonely place to be. And yet, says Paul, Christian marriage is meant to be like God in its faithfulness. God does not fall out of love with his people, even when they are pretty hard to love. Now, what does this mean for you in your marriage? Well, every marriage, every experience of marriage is different. The novelist Leo Tolstoy said, the opening lines of Anna Karenina, all happy families alike are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I think that's true of our relationships as well. It's a very perceptive comment. But what Paul says here needs to be taken seriously. You need to think about how it applies to you in your particular situation. It may be that you have specific questions in your situation about how to live it out today. And if you need to speak to one of the ministry team about it, then we're ready and willing. That's what we must do as the body of Jesus Christ. And that's where things are going to be so different from life on planet porn. In the body of Christ... Our bodies are not bought and sold. Our bodies are not weapons in a war against a spouse or part of an exchange deal in a contract. They belong to Jesus. They belong to the one who gave his body for them and who cleaned them and who made them one with him. In the body of Christ, we are called to copy what Jesus did with his body by laying down our bodies to serve others, whether we are single or married. You see, this call to purity, this call to chastity, is not something that belongs simply to each of us individually, but something that belongs to us as a community. We're called to be a community that is pure, a community that helps one another live out this calling of chastity. We're so different. The challenges we face are so different to each other. For one person is married and wants to be single. They think they will be happier. Another is single and wants to be married. They think they'll be happier. Paul says, well, look, neither just magically changes everything. The one change each of us must make is the change we must make for each other to be pure. And that doesn't mean refraining from contact with one another. In fact, far from it. You can imagine, you can imagine me saying we need to be a, a community of chastity and you thinking, I can imagine you thinking, oh, well, that means that we're all going to have to dress like nuns and monks. 
I'll hand out the uniforms next week and maybe we'll have a men's service and a women's service so that never the twain shall meet. But in Jesus Christ, we have a very deep connection with one another. In fact, we call each other brothers and sisters. And so part of practicing sexual chastity means helping each other by belonging to one another. Not just in theory, but in practice. When we have honest and open relationships with each other. When we eat together. If there's one thing Christians must always do, it is eat together. To just be present to one another. It means not just calling each other brother and sister, but being brothers and sisters to one another. It means making our church a place where women feel safe and respected and heard and where men learn that we don't have to be mastered by lust and power in this era of Me Too and revelations of domestic abuse. Wouldn't it be extraordinary if this place were somehow different? Wouldn't that be a testimony to the work of Christ? to the presence of Jesus among us. As I said, practicing sexual chastity doesn't mean us all walking around in nuns and monks' outfits. It's not a prudish vision. We are practicing chastity when we just care for one another, when we make it possible to share our struggles together, when we welcome one another in hospitality. Could we be that place? And what could you do to make it that place? Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.